You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Hello and welcome back to the Batuta Advocate radio show. My name is Wendell Hussey. I've got Errol Parker with me in the Desert Rock FM studios once again. Errol, how are you? Very good, Wendell. It's always good to be back here on the on the airwaves. Mm. Uh, something I really take a lot of enjoyment in. Uh, it's the little things in your week, you know, that you look forward to. But we have something quite big to look forward to over the next week. We're all heading down, a few of us, a few of us are heading down to the events capital of Australia. They're the capital for everything, I think. Uh, Melbourne. Melbourne, yes. This year it's Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. Um, they claim it all. They are capital of events, sport, food as well, croissants, I believe, too. They claim to have. They claim to be the croissant capital of the world. Now they have the best croissant store in the world, I believe. And we're actually going to talk to the woman behind the best croissant store in the world, according to the New York Times and uh, – Yotam Otolenghi, I believe you've got a few of his recipe books now as that, well, Errol. Yep, yep. As a bachelor, I have them on my bookshelf. They mm. are up there to gather some dust. Yeah. Hopefully uh, they impress someone one day. An avid reader. But yes, we are talking to Kate Reed, the mastermind behind Loon Croissanterie. Uh, I'm actually never quite sure how to say that word, croissanterie. But Kate Reed, thanks very much for tuning in today, dialing in. Oh, you're very welcome. And I've got two things to say already. You nailed croissanterie. <laughs> and yes, I'm impressed that you've got Ottolenghi on your shelf. So job done. <laughs> big reader of Ottolenghi. Yeah. Also a big fan of his Jerusalem rice. Oh, I haven't. Uh, that, yeah. That's about as far as I've gotten. You've never cooked that one for me. So I'll, <laughs> um, I'll hang out for that. Now, Kate, it's a massive, massive couple of weeks coming up for Melbourne. Um, I know we hang shit on it being the event capital of the country, but there is plenty going on. Yeah, I feel like everything happens in Melbourne in March. It's the best month of the year. Like, obviously, um, one of my loves, Formula One, is coming to town in, I think, a week and a half. Uh, It's on at the same time as the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival, which is also close to my heart. Comedy festivals are coming up and I think Fashion Week's just happened. So, yeah, it's all happening at the moment. How do you balance that as the the mind behind the croissant shop and also an avid F1 fan? How do you balance your time over this next kind of week-long period? Look, it's... It's pretty tough. I struggled with it last year. So actually this year I've taken long service leave. (laughs) (laughs) So I can just focus on the F1 for a couple of weeks, which is amazing. That's great. Yep, really good. And here I am at work recording a podcast about Loon with you guys, so it's not really long service leave. (laughs) No, that's obviously one thing that we wanted to touch on here is that we do have a bakery here in Batuta, but we don't have people queuing up out the front of it like they're in, you know, communist Russia just trying to get some bread. What makes a croissant worth queuing for? Well, I think, oh gosh, that's a really good question. It's the only thing that we do at Loon. We just focus on croissants. When I first started the business, my observations were that most bakeries did some things really well and some things really average or did everything average. And I don't like the idea of doing anything average. So I figured rather than start a bakery and trying to perfect everything, I would just pick one product that was dear to my heart, croissants, and I'd just focus on throwing all my energy and effort into that one product to make it as good as it possibly could. And I think at the time I started Loon, 
There were not very many good examples of croissants in, well, in Australia in general, but I'd scoped out Melbourne pretty tightly. Yeah. Um, I think they were a token item on most bakeries' counters, and I just wanted to show people what an amazing one could be like, and it just became an obsession. Yeah, well, I'll say that a lot of the ones uh, here in Western Queensland, they are often accompanied with uh, some cheese and a bit of ham sort of jammed in the middle of it. But, Vegemite um, as well. Vegemite, anything. You, you know, I think they're kind of used like the pita bread is yep. kind of used in parts of uh, North America. The Woolworths ones are quite good up here as well. I know, but not many people have time in the morning when to hop up, take the croissants out of the freezer, mm. you, you know, and pop them in the oven. That is one thing I wanted to ask you about, Kate. Obviously, there are some people who they see life as a process where you want to be as efficient as possible. You know, food is something that you just strap the food bag on, you eat, and then you move on to the next thing, whatever it is in life that gives you joy. It's human diesel to some people. Yeah, to some people. But then there are other people who say, well, there's actually something quite nice about lining up for a croissant. You hang out, you think about this nice croissant, you're there with someone, you know, potentially you care about. You're talking to other people. It's the same reason why old men love to play golf. It's just time outdoors with friends. Yeah. I think you're really onto something there. And, I mean, I didn't start Loon with the vision for lines around the block. But, I mean, I think inevitably if a product takes off and people start lining up, it happens organically. But a lot of people now describe that standing in line was actually one of the parts of the experience that made it so special like everyone in line has a different story as to why they're here or how they heard about loon they make friends in the line lines have been synonymous with loon since day dot pretty much and back in the elwood days the line was pretty insane i don't know if you guys know this but um we'd open at 8 a.m and the line would often start at 2 a.m so people would start showing up We've had some pretty wild examples of like, I think it was a federal election one year and some guy had gotten in the line at about 5.30 and finally it was his turn to be served and he showed up at the counter and looked very confused and was like, (laughs) where are the polling boots? Like this guy. Oh, (laughs) gosh. Yeah, it's, it's pretty great. <laughs> that's yeah, that is that's some serious dedication <laughs> to the croissant and some serious dedication to voting as well. We wanted to know as well. You're one of the icons of Melbourne. Loon's an icon of Melbourne. Everyone who goes down there seems to talk about it and rave about the croissants, and they can get their hands on them. But you had a whole career and a whole profession away from pastries in the world of F1. I did. Yeah, that was the first thing that. Was, I guess was my earliest obsession. When I was a little kid, I'd watch F1 with my dad. Yeah. And I think I was about 13 years old when I went to a Grand Prix for the first time and just witnessing those cars in person, like seeing the speed. And at that time they had a V10 engine yeah. and like it just squealed through the air. And I wasn't really interested in like all the glamour and glitz surrounding F1. For me, it was really just how could you design something that can travel so fast around such a twisty circuit? So, yeah, I think I developed an obsession with F1 and aerodynamics very early on and worked really hard, um, went through high school and studied aerospace engineering at university and then eventually got a job as an aerodynamicist for the Williams F1 team first and then I moved to what was the Force India F1 team, but it's now Aston Martin um, as an aerodynamicist as well. That's an incredible achievement of the dream as well, like dreaming something at that age and then just going through all of the steps and ending up on 
the famous F1 teams where you wanted to end up. Did you grow up in and around Melbourne? Were you hearing the cars whiz around and that's how you went? Or was it something that you went into the city for? No, I grew up maybe like maybe eight or nine Ks out of the city, say eight or nine Ks from the circuit on a really clear Melbourne morning when they were going out to do their their sort of warm up session early. You could actually hear the cars from mum and dad's house when I was a kid. So, and it was just this like real subtle high pitched squeal, but you're like, how can I hear a car that's nine kilometers away? I mean, yeah. that's, that's pretty wild. Yeah, it um, resounds all through the city. What yeah. did your parents say when you said, oh, I want to be an aerodynamicist. I want to go and study and work on F1 cars. Well, I think dad was pretty thrilled. Like, I don't know. I don't know if you guys have um, an interest in F1, but it is impossible to get anywhere near the cars at the circuit. And like every yeah. year dad and I would buy, you know, a grandstand pass for the four days and you'd sit there and you'd watch the cars fly by you for four days but you couldn't get anywhere near the pits like that was reserved for the teams and celebrities and I think when I said to dad that I wanted to work in F1 he's like oh great you know free pit passes and access (laughs) to the cars and I mean ironically it has kind of happened but less through my F1 career and more through Loon so mum I think I think mum she wanted me to be a ballerina and when I was four years old, she took me to ballet classes, I think for about six weeks. And apparently I cried every day, told her I hated it. And the teacher said, I don't think you should bother with this anymore. And like, ironically, I love the ballet now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But at the time, more interested in motor cars and yeah. uh, things would go very, very fast. I love that dad was already thinking about the perks of yeah. Um, yeah. becoming <laughs> part of the system. We actually had this, when I first moved over to the UK, in the first year with Williams, he came over um, and we went to the Monaco Grand Prix together. And that I think that had been our dream Grand Prix to go to, like, you know, from mm. all the winters sitting watching the races. So my flatmate was one of the, the pit crew with the Williams team. And when he heard that I was in Monaco, he's like, hey, come down and hang out with us in the pits. And, like, suddenly, like, it's not even the, the Melbourne Grand Prix. We're in the Monaco Grand Prix hanging yeah. out in the pits. And there's literally, like, Hollywood stars and dad's standing there talking to, you know, F1 Hall of Fame people like Jackie Stewart and Frank Williams. And, yeah, it was it was pretty amazing. I, that sounds like a, yeah, pretty incredible realisation. It would have been very surreal. It would have been a very happy old man. With uh, the engineering side of things, I know it's changed a little bit over the last few years, but I imagine it would have been very, very male-dominated engineering at that point in time when you were going through university and progressing into... Yeah, especially in uh, in a Europe-based Formula One team. Mm. Yep. So through uni, I think there was 120 students in my cohort and nine of us were girls and not all nine girls made it to the end of the course. But then when I started to work in Formula One at the Williams F1 team, there was 500 staff at the team I was the only female in a technical role in the team at the time. So there were other women working in the company, but they were in human resources, hospitality, catering, marketing. The building that I worked in was exclusive to aerodynamic design. They just had Mm. an amazing new facility built and there were 120 people working in that building and I was the only woman and uh, yeah, there wasn't even a female toilet. (laughs) (laughs) The the only woman out of 120. Yeah. In that building. There was actually this amazing story in my first week at Williams. 
I don't know if many people know this, but uh, Sir Frank had an apartment that was on the top floor of the main design building and he would sleep at Williams three or four nights a week, so not with his wife and family. And on those nights, he would walk around the corridors to see who was working late. So in my first week, one of the nights I was there at maybe nine or 10 at night, and I saw him, I saw the door to the office open and he came in in his wheelchair and wheeled past my desk and I saw his head stop and then come back and he looked over into my cubicle and he's like, oh my God, it's a woman. (laughs) (laughs) So that night he, um, you know, he, he also loves Australia. So, you know, he knew my name and knew that I was from Melbourne. And every time he came into the office, he would always purposely stop and have a chat to me. And I think maybe that was, that was the only thing that the guys didn't like because I was a female, I stood yeah. out to Frank mm-hmm. and he made an effort to know details about me that maybe he hadn't known about some of the guys that had been there for a lot longer than me. But So th- yeah. they perceived that as favouritism even though there were 119 blokes in the building and <laughs> one woman. I've never actually thought about that before. That's right. Frank would stop and chat to me and that's favouritism. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're getting looked after. So at university, is it something that you have to choose early on if um, like in your course, if you were going to do things that fly or things that drive really fast? Uh, I think if I'd stayed working as an engineer in aerodynamics, like the theory of aerodynamics can be applied to almost everything that moves through a fluid. Yeah. And I could have spent 10 years or 15 years doing it in Formula One and probably still pivoted to aircraft because the science is still the same but specifically with formula one if i'd focused my entire university career on aircraft i would probably not have as great a chance of getting into f1 because there's just so few jobs in the world as an aerodynamicist in formula one that from day one if you're not focusing your efforts on open wheel racing cars then you're already putting yourself behind so yeah even from like every project that i could pick the, the thing that I wanted to study, I, it would always be automotive or race car related. And I also tried to get experience working for free for some of like some of the lower classes like F3 in Australia. Yeah. 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 Actually, cool. they, the F3 guys just broke me. They, they? I was like this private school educated girl who came in so wet behind the ears. And like they, they took the piss out of me so much, but in the end, like what I learned with them was so invaluable. Like they taught me how to like break down and rebuild gearboxes and things. And they're like, don't go designing any shit that like takes three hours to change on the car. Cause that's completely useless and you will lose the race. So it was actually pretty practical information that I learned with them. You then, after some time to basically stepped outside of F1 and you moved into the bakery sphere and you... I believe you spent some time at uh, a famous French bakery and going to a local public school up here in Batuta. I did a couple of years of Indonesian and not too much else. So I'm just going to have a run at the name of this place. Errol might have to help me out here. But du pan et des idées. Do you know what? That's that's pretty good. Du pan et des idées. You That's close. much better. That's, uh, yeah. Thank you for being kind. But yes, uh, the way you said it there. How did you um, end up at this famous, famous bakery? Well, when I came back to Australia, I, I had no experience working, you know, in a commercial kitchen or bakery. But this one incredible woman that owned this beautiful little cafe in my parents' house, she gave me a job doing her daily baking. 
and I was enjoying it, but I was getting a bit bored. Like making, you know, cakes and tarts isn't particularly challenging when I guess you've been designing Formula One cars. You need something a bit more complicated to stimulate your brain. And I'd started to develop an interest in French pastry because it's probably the most complex of the different cultures. And I'd bought myself a book about Paris patisseries and came home from work one day. It had arrived in the mail and I sat on the lounge room floor, randomly opened it up and there was this double page photo. Um, It was pain au chocolat that had been stacked up on top of each other. The photo was really zoomed in and you could see every single perfect layer, the little bits of chocolate poking out. Um, And I was so transfixed by this photo that I literally walked up to the nearest flight center at the time when we weren't booking it. (laughs) (laughs) And I booked myself a ticket to Paris. And when I was in Paris, I decided that I wanted to visit this bakery that the photo had been taken at. And was your your engineer brain just transfixed by that photo, like all of the little details and how it was put together? Well, like, yeah, I mean, I was learning how to do things like, you know, a tart base with short crust pastry, but I'm like, how did they create all those layers? Like there's magic and science in there. And I think the more I started to delve into it, you know, it's not just a 30 minute process and you've made a chocolate cake. It's three days later and dozens and dozens of processes and you pull a croissant out of the oven that someone eats in like 30 seconds and has no idea of the work that's gone into it. But I didn't really start to learn about croissant technique until um, I worked. So I ended up working in the boulangerie that I saw the photo. I convinced the owner to take me on as a stagiaire, which is an unpaid internship. Yeah. Uh, he was like, oh, not many people in the bakery speak English. You're probably going to struggle, but sure, you can give it a go. And it was maybe one of the greatest learning experiences of my life. Like I wasn't just learning how to make croissants it was this physically hard work and you you were so exhausted at the end of the day you slept so well and i was learning all of it in a different language so your senses had to be so alive you were listening and watching and learning but the head pastry chef sebastian again he hated my guts he was like why is this australian girl who can't speak french here in my bakery and why do i have to look after her yeah and then the only other raw pastry chef was a korean girl called yung ji And she, bless her, like she just took me under her wing and everything that I learned was pretty much from her. But I came back to Australia speaking French with a Korean accent. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the French, they're not particularly fond of people in France who don't speak much French, are they? No, like it's almost a common theme around the world, Wendell. Oh, look, there are plenty of places that are very nice to you if you don't speak their language. No, I just don't yeah. think the French are big fans of anyone. Except no, <laughs> I don't think they really like many people. Was it hard to get into that bakery? Did you have to beg or anything? Or was it just just a kind of fortunate moment that you found Sebastian? Oh, I, well, so Sebastian wasn't the owner. He was the head pastry chef, but Christophe, the owner, when I first went to the bakery, I was so hypnotised by the beauty of it and watching the experience of like all the slim French women lining up and buying their croissants and walking out the door, shoving them in their mouths. I'm like, I just need to be part of this. Mm. And so the next day I emailed Christoph, the owner, and I just told him how much I'd love the experience. And I said, I don't suppose you'd take me on as an apprentice. And he'd met me for about five minutes and given me, you know, all these free pastries. And he was the only one that spoke English in the bakery. And he wrote back to me and he said, well, we don't normally take people, but um, I can just see the same passion and motivation in you that was in me. So, yeah, when would you like to start? And sometimes I feel like 
you know, I could have asked him a week later and maybe his mindset would have been different and he mm. would have said no or so many serendipitous things had to happen to make that, like, that be a yes. And yeah. yeah, just got him at the right moment. And did yeah. your old man start immediately visualising all of the croissants he's going to be having and um, being able to walk <laughs> into fancy French boulangers? The funny thing is, like, Apart from motor racing, dad's other favorite thing is France. (laughs) (laughs) He loves crepes and croissants and cream and just like everything about French culture. He took French lessons forever. And I definitely landed on F1 because of dad, but the Mm. croissant thing was a big coincidence. So he's gotten pretty lucky over the years. Yeah, he's lucked in both times. He'd be stoked with that. Yeah. (laughs) And then coming back to Melbourne and setting it all up, I... Imagine the hours would have been off the charts. It's yes. the very early mornings, 2 a.m., yeah, 3 a.m. Um, the first few years of Loon, so the first two years it was just me by myself and I was working about 100 hours a week. And when it's you by yourself, you do literally every job. It's not just making the croissants. It's, yeah, it's... You know, invoicing and deliveries and getting the ingredients and the cleaning and just and I slept in a on a little mezzanine above the bakery so my whole life was loon but then about 18 months in I asked my brother to join so initially it had been this little wholesale bakery that I supplied croissants to some of Melbourne's amazing espresso bars and then I decided that I wanted a little customer facing shop because I wanted to see the people enjoying the croissants see the people lining up yeah I wanted to yeah. see people lining up I didn't want to miss that yeah (laughs) very motivating you know you're like well I've toiled in the kitchen for a hundred hours and now I can see people wanting what I'm what I'm doing and what I'm making so my brother joined and Cam and I would get we'd get to the bakery at about 2 45 in the morning he makes an amazing coffee he'd make an espresso and a flat white for both of us and I'd make a bit of fruit toast and then he would talk to me about NBA and we'd listen to rap (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and we'd work like 180, 80, 100 hours a week together. It was a lot, brother and sister. Were there some, I'm assuming there were some straining times, spending that much time with anybody oh, over the course of a week. Infamously, our first huge fight happened when we were shaping butter and we both had our very sharp chef's knives and we were standing across the table from each other, wielding the knives at each other. Yelling a few <laughs> expletives at each other as well. Oh, do you know what? My language, even going through university with all boys and then working, you know, with all men in an F1 team, my language was so good until I started working with my brother. And I reckon I swear more than him now. It's I've kept it really <laughs> clean for the podcast, but like I think my mum is disgusted at my language sometimes. And I it's hundred percent Cam's fault. <laughs> it's all Cam's fault. All it's all Cam's fault. fault. Yeah, fair. <laughs> So can you tell us about um, after you've gone through all of this and you open up your shop for the first time and you've got your first customers, how did that day go? I mean, everyone always has, you know, like a little bit of teething issues here and there, but like I'm interested to know how your first day went. Well, the first day the first day was really successful and we sold out – this was like when we turned it into the little customer-facing business. Yeah. We sold out at maybe like – 10 or 11 in the morning. At this stage, not a lot of people knew about us. And the next day we were really pumped and we were ready, you know, we'll sell out by 10 or 11 again. And by 10 or 11 11 o'clock, we had so many pastries left over and we're like, we're done. (laughs) Like, (laughs) this is a failure. And I remember like we shut up shop. It was was such a, 
I can't think of the word, but we, we just basically gave in. And I remember driving around Melbourne, handing out croissants to all my friends that day. And I think ever since that moment, Cam and I have never taken for granted the line or that people will show up. And I remember in the early days, I mean, the lines, the lines started pretty much the next weekend. And so from then on, we always had customers and we knew that we would sell out every day. But it didn't change the fact that every morning we'd both say to each other, oh, my God, I hope customers show up. Like, I hope we haven't done all this work in vain. And, you know, then you'd open the door at 8 a.m. and there was 200 people lined up around the block. And you're like, oh, thank God, they're back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think I, I still feel like that, you know, 11 years later. Has there ever been any temptation to really sort of scale the business up to the point where you've got, you know, hundreds of shops and, you, you know, you, you've got like all these ones all over the country or all over the world? I think, I mean, obviously that idea goes through your head, but it's I've like it's gone through my head and then left very quickly. Um, croissants are notoriously very difficult to make and they require very talented and skilled pastry chefs. Um, at Loon, we're constantly trying to improve them. So it's a, an ongoing innovation where we critically analyze every part of the three-day process on a daily basis to see how we can do it better. Yeah. And that's just really difficult to scale to the level that you're talking about. I mean, you know, we, we moved from that tiny shop to now what's our flagship store in Fitzroy, which um, is still, I think, one of the most beautiful bakeries in the world. And then I think we moved there in 2015. And since then, we now have two more stores in Melbourne and we have two stores in Brisbane. And at the end of this year, we'll have our first store in Sydney. And that's felt like fairly rapid but controlled growth from our perspective. And, yeah. you know, our recruitment's rigorous. Our training process is like we reckon it takes about six months from a pastry chef coming on board to them fully understanding how we make croissants. So that time scale and that challenge isn't something that you could roll out into hundreds and hundreds of stores. And I was curious, are there crimes against croissants? Are there particular ways that, you know, people eat them or particular yep. things that they could do? I know we spoke about <laughs> Vegemite and um, ham and cheese at the top of the show there, which probably is a crime against uh, oh, croissants. No, no, no. Like our biggest selling pastry is the ham and cheese. But we don't, we don't get a plain one and cut it in half and then put that in. We actually incorporate the ham and cheese into the raw pastry and bake it. So, like, the cheese holds oh, on. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's like it's – when you boys are in Melbourne, I'm giving you the croissant experience of your okay. life. Oh, yes, please. <laughs> yeah. What, what but, um, tips? Are there any things we shouldn't do or should do? Ways yeah, to eat like, it? The poor ex-staff member – I talked about this in a newspaper article and she read it and she knew I was talking about her – I went back into the staff room one day and <laughs> had cut a croissant in half and filled it with Maggi Minute noodles. And I, I just remember walking in going, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> and walked out. Yeah, like, two minute noodles in the croissant. That's yeah. like, I can't even see that. She sounds like, like a Queenslander to me. That's what I was <laughs> I thought you were going to say she sounds like a queen. <laughs> but, yeah, there's, I, I don't believe in dunking croissants in your coffee and I know that's a really French thing to do but it makes the whole thing soggy and one of the joys of eating a croissant is that textural difference between the crunch on the outside and then the beautiful soft buttery layers on the inside mm. and why would you want to sog that up by dunking it in your coffee but I'm also not one to tell people how they can and can't eat their croissants like if they've stood in a line for an hour and a half they yep. can do whatever they want 
Oh, <laughs> I actually except the noodles. The, the greatest atrocity to a loon croissant. Across the road from Loon Fitzroy, the apartment block, um, a couple of guys used to live there that worked as cocktail bartenders in a nearby bar. And they'd get home, you know, four or five in the morning when our customers were starting to line up. And they'd sit on the, their balcony and like heckle the customers drinking beers. <laughs> and so we had to have like a bouncer out the front who was keeping the customers quiet and also managing this. And they'd always shout down to him, hey, man, can't you just chuck us up some croissants? So one, one day the line was short and the bouncer was like, hey, you know what? If there's ever a time you're going to get croissants, I'd come and join the line today. You've got your best chance of not waiting too long. So we had this epic like chocolate hazelnut twice baked thing. It was like $13 and they bought a bunch of pastries, but they bought one of these and about a half an hour later, there was this, like the line was super long by this stage and there was this commotion outside and Cam went out to see what had happened and the bartender had taken this like chocolate hazelnut croissant, which was like weighty. It was like a brick. And he'd thrown it at one of the customers in line from his balcony and it had hit this guy on the head and he was covered in like icing sugar and flakes. And he was really, I mean, he wasn't upset. He was just confused, like in a bit of shock. And Cam was so mad that he picked the like offending croissant up off the yeah. ground and packed it so it was really tight and he yeah. threw it and like it missed this guy's head by millimetres. But it <laughs> I can have, was was old mate just giggling off his head at that. Just yeah. I mean, to be fair, I can see that being a humorous <laughs> image of a croissant hitting this man and just going just like what just hit my head? And it would have hurt because it was heavy. So anyway, Cam went around to the bar and made a formal complaint against the bartender, and he had to come in and formally he he walked into the the cube, which is like the climate controlled room yeah. that we make the pastries in. And I was on the laminator, the the main piece of equipment that we use to create the layers. And he walked in and I reckon he was half cut still. And he's like, oh, I'm really sorry for throwing a croissant at one of your customers. I'm like, you don't mean it. And we got into a big fight and I'm like, <laughs> anyway. How I long were those guys there for? Oh, too long. <laughs> Actually, one of our, one of our least, like, I, I guess one of our greatest foes is a French guy that lives nearby. He fucking hates us. Like, I just, of course I don't he know. Does. Yeah, he hates us. I'm like, can't you just be happy that the street smells like butter and croissants? But every opportunity to complain about us, he he has a go. So, ah, uh, some people are just like that, I guess, aren't they? It's probably just to do with the submarine deal from mm. you know. Oh, I think that it's definitely to do with the submarine deal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, maybe you need some drunken bartenders to throw a croissant at him when he walks past. No, I don't even think he deserves that. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Kate, we look forward very much to popping in and having some of these delightful croissants. I will have the ham and cheese. It sounds quite nice, but I'll have a savoury It's very one good. Well. I'll get you it's one fresh out of the oven. When oh. the cheese is like still stringy, like it pulls from your mouth to the pastry. And yeah, it's very good. Sounds delightful. Can't wait. Thank you very much for jumping on today and sharing the story and a few laughs. Very enjoyable and we look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you so much. Can't wait to see you in Melbourne.